I want to just bring a word of greeting. Uh, Patty and I actually have the privilege of pastoring a church, so we're not, our, our doctorate is not in medicine, it's in uh, ministry. And so we're involved in ministry, and we have been in our church for 31 years. So uh, we know what it's like to go into a brand new facility like you're about to do, and I'll tell you, the excitement that's going to happen in the months to come is absolutely amazing. So we are really rejoicing with you. So I'm going to have you turn to the book of Revelation, and I'm going to conclude uh, by sharing the introduction of the book, chapter 1. And so we're going to be looking there at chapter 1. So I want to raise the question, why, why do bad things happen to so many good people? You ever wondered that question? You know, especially people that uh, we love. And sometimes we can be just overwhelmed by some of the challenges of people that are struggling. We see issues of relationship difficulties. There's medical issues. Uh, we have a very large congregation, and there's always people in crisis. It just seems to be every single day we're dealing with someone in major crisis. People are battling emotional issues. People are struggling with uh, medical issues, financial issues, whatever the issues are, children, uh, elderly parents, just on and on it goes. So suffering is something that I think we all would like to avoid. How many say, I'm up for that, right? I, I, I'd sign up for that tomorrow if I could just avoid all the suffering in the world. But unfortunately, it doesn't quite work that way. And, and I think what makes it even more distressful for us is when we're trying to do the right thing and bad things start happening to us. Isn't that right? We just go, what's going on, God? Don't you care about me? I'm, I'm trying to be your servant here. I'm trying to do what's right in your eyes. And so sometimes the question of why begins to fill our minds. God, why me? Like, why is this happening? Just recently we had a friend of ours and they found out they had cancer and, and they raised the question. It's a very natural, normal question. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Eugene Peterson, who's written uh, very extensively on Revelation, says this, perhaps the greatest mystery in suffering is how it can bring a person into the presence of God in a state of worship which I think is very fascinating. It can, he says, do that. It can create wonder. It can create love and praise. Matter of fact, he says, suffering does not inevitably do that, but it does it far more often than we would expect. And this was certainly true of John. John was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the letters of John. He was the disciple, kind of an inner three of the 12. He was I would suggest that John was probably the closest person to Jesus on earth. He was the one that kind of lived beyond where the rest of them did. He did not die a premature death as many of the others did. But John was actually exiled to a small island and off present-day Turkey called Patmos. And while he was there, I mean, just think, he's, he's kind of in a prison colony here that's about eight miles long, four miles wide, just a rocky little place. And he finds himself there strictly because he's a follower of Jesus. He's banished because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All he, all he had done wrong was that he had communicated the message of Jesus to a, his culture and he had stood firm. And because of that, he was persecuted, and finally he was exiled. But John's greatest struggle was not, why me? 
John's greatest concern was for the churches that he was leading and overseeing. And the Bible says something very fascinating. You knew the churches were on his mind because it says here that um, in verse the next verse here, verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day, which by the way is today, it's a Sunday. Uh, you know, the Sabbath is a Saturday, Sunday is the Lord's day, and you say, well, why in the world do we call it the Lord's day? It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think it's ironic that the early Christians, who were primarily Jewish, began to worship on a different day. And that was to celebrate the great conquest that Jesus uh, actually cr did by conquering death itself because he rose again from the dead. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Notice that John, you know, even though he had all of these trials in his life, and even though he was concerned about the churches, he was actually in prayer. And he was communing with, with the Lord, and he was praying, I'm sure, for the people that he was leading and concerned about them. And, 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 the, and the Bible says here in verse 12, and I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I want to just suggest a thought to us this morning, that worship, when we really connect with God, when we really begin to pour out our hearts to God, when we allow God's Spirit to touch our hearts, our worship begins to transcend our troubles. It doesn't mean our troubles go away, but all of a sudden, it changes our perspective on what's happening in our lives. In seeing the risen Savior, John receives a disclosure about what is happening in the churches that he is serving and what he is about, what is about to happen in those churches. And actually, this is the final message. After this message to John here, we, what we call as the Bible, the canon, the authoritative rule for our lives, is now closed. We don't add anything to that. We don't need to because God's final word has not been brought to us. The final message is actually to prepare God's people for the ages to come. He's, he's trying to give us a message that all of the things that are going to happen to us, we need to be aware of. And I think it's a stirring message to encourage us, especially in times of difficulties. Anybody qualify for that? Anybody run into difficulties in life? You know, so I think it's a book that we need to come back to, and yet I think it's the book that most people shy away from. And the reason we shy away from it is we don't understand it. It just seems kind of foreign to us who start reading this thing and there's all these weird stuff going on and there's all these images and it almost seems like a science fiction movie. We just don't quite get it because it's unlike most of the other books in the New Testament. It's closed in this, clothed in this different literary genre than the rest of the New Testament. And yesterday I spoke at length talking a little bit about this apocalyptic literature and why the Jewish people resorted to that literature because they were trying to clothe uh, a message of hope, and to say that the people that were oppressing them would one day have to answer for their bad behavior. And at that moment, it was the nation of, and the empire of Rome. And when you're a, a minority group, you know, you're not gonna, you don't want to say too much. So the Jewish people, from the time they came out into exile and out of exile, began to use this genre to begin to bring words of encouragement. I talked about that. And I think the book discusses it at length. What must also be kept in mind is that this is a message to deal with the present challenges of life. Sometimes we forget, you know, this, is, this has relevancy for our lives. It's meant to give us hope in life's most difficult and distressing moments of life when our world seems to be collapsing around us. So, you know, 
I don't think most of us usually go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in a crisis now. Usually we think, I'll go to the Psalms, the prayer book, where I can kind of identify emotionally. But how many people go, yeah, I'm going to go to the book of Revelation and really get encouragement? We don't quite think of it that way. It just doesn't, you know, first thing that pops into our minds. And yet we'll find in this book tremendous encouragement because God has a word of encouragement for us. Do you know what God is trying to tell us? That even though the world around us seems to be falling apart, and you know, from our, from my perspective, as I look at the tremendous uh, suppression of truth and the brokenness, and I just preached a powerful message in our church last week, and how you know every civilization, and I love history, and every civilization actually deteriorates from within, and that we're actually in that stage as a culture, where our society is deteriorating, we don't even realize it. We're not on the ups climb, guys. We're coming down the back slope of the mountain right now, and we are uh, basically morally deteriorating as a culture, and it's going to, you know, we're going to see greater problems in the days ahead, and I think that's why we need to have a look at this book, because one of the things this book says is that God is still in control that God is actually sovereign, and that God is going to address all the evils of this world. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, I love it. It says, there's a moment coming when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ will be the ultimate ruler on this planet. And I'll tell you, it's going to be a different world. It's going to be a transformed world because all the things that you and I agonize about and are frustrated about, and not as human beings, you know, every time we see sickness, that's going to disappear. Every time we see someone dying, that's going to disappear. Isn't that an amazing thing? We're going to see tears vanish from the planet because there'll be nothing to cry about. What an amazing moment. Leon Morris now points out something as as he shares kind of a backdrop to the book of Revelation. He said the gospel had been preached throughout the Roman province of Asia. And then he goes on to say, some had believed and become Christians. And they had been taught that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of God, and now having died for us, he had risen triumphantly over death. He went back to heaven, but in due course, he told his followers that he would return. That's a message that we need to remind ourselves. Jesus is actually coming back, folks. He's alive. This is what we're living for. Jesus would actually destroy the kingdoms of darkness that have set up themselves against God's perfect moral order. It was an inspiring faith in the little group of Christians at the very beginning of the first century embraced it with fervor. They looked and longed for that promised completion of what God's will would be perfectly done throughout the earth, and then nothing happened. Now, how many know that hope deferred makes the heart sick? That's what a proverb says. In other words, when you anticipate something and it doesn't occur, how frustrating is that? And you begin to question and wonder. And some of the people I was touring the building says, if somebody would have told me how long this building would have taken, <laughs> they probably would have just pulled their hair out, right? It's taken years for that to happen. And that's what happens when our hope is deferred. The church continued to be a tiny group, doubtless adding a few members at a time, but not becoming and not looking like becoming a mighty force that would overcome the Roman Empire. The empire continued on its wicked way. Oppression and wrong abounded, evil men prospered, idolaters persisted in idol worship, and the cult of the emperor flourished. Because they would not conform, the little band of Christians found themselves the object of suspicion and sometimes outright persecution. 
A few of them were killed. Some were imprisoned. Some were exiled. And what had become of the message which had induced them to become Christians in the first place? Where was the promise of Christ's coming? And all things continued as it seemed from the very foundation of the world. If God was active in the world, it actually demanded a very strong faith to perceive it. And I like what Morris says. He says, most Christians were like most Christians. Many of them have no more than an average faith. And so they struggle because what is seen seems to be more of a deeper reality in their thinking than what God is promising. Had they been mistaken in coming to Christ in the first place? Was it all a delusion? Was Christianity a fine religion? Indeed, you know, when we gather in a room like this and we worship God, but it really doesn't work when we leave the room and begin to operate in our daily lives. And I think the first century Christians were struggling with some of these things. They must have concluded that it was, that it was a pretty delusion which must inevitably be shattered on the hard rocks of social and political realities. Was the real power in the hands of the emperor and his associates? And sometimes I wonder if Christians think this way, even as it relates to politics, like we say, they're going to make a big difference. And so often we're disappointed when nothing happens. <laughs> to a church perplexed by such problems, this book was written. We must not think of it as some kind of an intellectual puzzle sent to a relaxed church with time on its hands and an inclination to solving mysteries. You know, and that's what it's been, right? It was sent to a little persecuted, frustrated church, one which did not know what to make of the situation in which it found itself. And it was to that end that John now received a revelation so he could speak to the church and encourage it in a difficult time. So the first chapter opens with a prologue, a greeting, and a vision. And they all point to the central person in the book of Revelation, and it's not the Antichrist. Amen. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he's not even introduced in the book till the 13th chapter. But all the chapters preceding that, we see a picture of Jesus. Chapter 1 focuses our attention on something that I think is the essence of what our life is all about. And we've already started practicing that today, and that's worship. Revelation is a book of worship. Revelation is to move our eyes beyond our difficulties, to look up and to say, Lord, I'm looking to you. And so as we turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to discover three things about the nature of worship that transforms and helps us see our current context of life in an eternal context. You see, the book of Revelation is actually looking at life from a divine perspective. And so often when we're in the middle of a problem, all we can see is our problem. How many kind of notice that? If we have a problem, it just seems, how many when you start focusing on your problem, it just seems to get worse? Anybody besides myself? It just seems to grow. But the moment you take your eyes off the problem, you start looking to God, you start considering how amazing, how incredible God is, it just seems like the problems now just begin to shrink. You know, all of a sudden the anxiety levels go down. All of a sudden, you know, we've cast our cares on God and we realize this is no big thing for God right? He's able to bring kingdoms up, bring kingdoms down. You know, he can heal sick bodies. He can raise people from the dead. All of a sudden we go, my problem is no big thing. We get it in the right perspective. So let's take a look. The first thing we discover is the preeminence of worship. Not only does worship originate from God and the focus is God, but it's the primary thing that you and I get to do. And it's as we worship, God begins to reveal things to us. Look at verse 1. 
The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, I want you to notice the word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation means the uncovering of something hidden, the making known of what we could not find out by ourselves. Isn't it amazing? Do you realize that you and I have a revealed religion? God has to reveal himself to us. We need the Spirit of God to open up our hearts and minds. And it's not, it's not just about an intellect. It's, just, it's amazing how God does this. From some of the most intellectual people to some of the most simple people, God can open our hearts to him. And it's powerful what he does. There on that Roman prison island called Patmos, John sees the resurrected and exalted Jesus, and he hears a message to write down in order for it to be communicated as the last word to the church. And in that moment, the present hardships and difficulties had been very real, but now they have become secondary to the presence of God and to the message that he's now communicating by vision to John. And I just put down this, whenever you and I are in a a time of struggle in our lives, when we have God's presence reveal itself to us, when he reveals himself to us, it will sustain us in that moment. He's worthy of our trust. Now from this chapter, I find that worship involves a number of things. Obviously, it involves hearing. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. It is hearing with the intent to understand and act upon it. So it's interesting how it says, he, Jesus kept saying, he, he who has ears to hear, let him he, hear. What does he mean by that? He's saying you can't just hear words. You can't just receive thoughts and ideas. What you need to do is understand and embrace them and act upon them. And that's when power comes into your life. You know, a lot of people think things don't work when they just listen to something, but they don't act on it. How many know that's, there's a big difference between, you know, hearing something and doing something. You know, a lot of people, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I, I keep saying this to our church family all the time, you know, we only, we have to experience truth in order for it to become reality in our lives. You know, I can read about riding a bicycle all I want to, but till the moment I step on that bicycle, I haven't ridden a bicycle. I can study bicycles. I can tell you all the best models. I can tell you all the prices. I can tell you how to ride it. I can read it in a book. But until you sit on the bike seat and start going, you haven't ridden a bicycle. You know, and that's what happens to a lot of Christians. We hear things over and over and over again. After a while, we think that we're experiencing it, but we're not. We're not acting on it. And that's what he means here by hearing. He says, blessed are you who read the words, but who hear. In other words, hear to do it. And that word blessed is very powerful. You know, it actually, the word blessed is a Hebrew idea, and it can be translated happy. How many want to be happy? I got my hand up. Anybody else want to be happy? Any, anybody up for being happy? Okay, that's just, we're interchanging a word. Happy and blessed are the same idea, guys. But in the Hebrew mind, it's the word Asher. How many know Asher was one of the tribes, that, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes? And that's when Leah had him. She says, I'll be happy now. I'll be blessed. But you know, when we think of blessed, blessed is a very interesting concept. Blessed doesn't mean that I get goosebumps on my goosebumps. It doesn't mean that I get everything I want. That's not what blessed means. That's what we sometimes think it means. But what it means is, in the Jewish mind, it means that I'm on the right path. That's a whole different concept. And there's really only two paths. You know, we're confused in this culture, by the way. We think we have all these options. We got two options. 
We're either walking in wisdom or we're walking in folly. That's it. You know, we're either doing what God's asking us to do or we're not. How many think that's just the only two options? You know, some people say, well, yeah, but there's all these options over here. Yeah, Jesus said there's a broad road, but they all lead to the same place. Yeah, to destruction. You know, and the, and the narrow road is far more challenging and more difficult. You're on the right path in the face of false paths. It has to do with the discovery of meaning in the face of chaos. And according to John in his book, we're in the deepest sense blessed when we have discovered this path. The times may be dangerous, but as John signals to us, the time is at hand, but neither the circumstance nor the timetable about potential circumstances are themselves the path. Our worth and our meaning come from God's decision about us. Isn't that amazing? You know, we need to redefine ourselves. Our culture's redefining itself. We need to understand that God has defined us. And that's such an amazing thought. And we're not defined by the dangers or the face of history or any of these challenges. Though these things affect us, and how many know trials do affect us? How many know difficulties do affect us? Challenges do affect us, but they don't need to define us. And that's a whole different story. That you and I need to be defined by who God says we are and what God says about us and what God ultimately is going to say is going to happen. We are blessed because we've obeyed God and therefore we're on the right path. You know, C.S. Lewis, who was an amazing scholar, graduated from Oxford. He was an atheist, struggled, eventually became a Christian. And uh, he wrote all kinds of different literary genres. Some of them were children's books, became movies, you know, like now we have the Chronicles of Narnia, you know. He wrote that stuff. But they were all allegories. And they have powerful messages inside of them. And one of his novels, The Horse and the Boy, kind of captures the sense of the biblical meaning of the word blessed. You see, Shasta is a little boy, and he's on a journey, and it's been very difficult. And in one scene, Shasta is on a, he's the lone rider on a mountain pass in the darkness, riding an unfamiliar horse, and there's all these dangers, and he's tired, and he's hungry, and all of a sudden, he senses there's a large presence near him. And he's, it's, he's just kind of wondering, he's aware that there's this, some presence alongside of him, and that presence is actually a lion, but it's Aslan. And if you know anything from the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is, a, is the figure of Christ. And finally, Shasta speaks out in fear. He goes, who are you? And the great lion still at his side, he says, boy, tell me your sorrows. And then he begins to complain to the large voice on this dangerous journey, his frightening experiences with lions and his unhappy childhood. And now the fact that he's hungry and he's thirsty, he's cold. And then Aslan surprises Shasta by saying, I do not call you unfortunate. In other words, Shasta is blessed because he's on the right road. And he has to learn that being on this journey, he has a task to do. And though the danger is real, Shasta is still tired and hungry, but he's blessed because he knows that where he's at, and dangerous as it is, he still knows he needs to be where he's at and where he even wants to be now. But best of all, he has met the great lion, Aslan. And I just put it in our darkest hours as we worship Jesus, he begins to reveal himself to us. 
He doesn't always eradicate the problems, but his presence is there in a powerful way. And how many have discovered in your journey as you walk with God that sometimes the most significant moments in your life have been the most difficult moments? And how many times have you discovered the nearness of God's presence and you begin to have a revelation of things that you didn't fully understand before, but God begins to make himself more real to you as you're walking through this difficult time in your life? But not only is worship about hearing, it's also about seeing. So what did John perceive? He saw Christ in the church. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, his hair and head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance." Yeah, I'm going to say something very interesting. You know, John walked with Jesus on earth, but now on the Isle of Patmos, he sees Jesus in his glorified state. A totally different vision. And it says here, he fell down as in fear. Because you see, sometimes we just, you know, we just, we just kind of walk around going, you know, Jesus is my buddy, you know, concept. And we've lost a real sense of awe about who God is. And one of the great concerns that I have, and I've been a pastor so long, is I, I see that people have lost something that I think is so intrinsic to helping us really walk with God in a meaningful way, and that we truly have an awe and a deep sense of respect. And actually, the Bible talks about, calls it fear. Not a, not a craven fear, but a, a, you know, just an overwhelming sense that the person I'm with, you know, this is the most significant person. This is the one that created the universe, and I'm walking with this person. And it's a little intimidating to be around Jesus sometimes. That we have this respect so that when he, 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 gives us, he gives us a word and he speaks into our lives, we go, well, that's just a good idea, Jesus. I'll consider doing that. You see, but God, that's what's so happening so often. You know, it's like, I'll take that into consideration. Rather than understanding this is the God of the universe speaking into our lives. And we're his servants. He saw that Jesus was in the church. I love that. Because the Bible says here that the lampstands are actually a metaphor for the nature of the church. And so where did he see Jesus? But he was in the church. And a lot of times people today are diminishing the church and saying, you know, I can follow Jesus, but I don't really need the church. I'm going, really? Well, that's not God's viewpoint. If you want to meet Jesus, start walking in the church because he's here. And I love making that declaration every Sunday. I said, folks, I want to declare to you that Jesus is in the house this morning. He's here in spirit, and his presence is here. And the same things that Jesus did when he walked on the face of the earth, he's able to do right now in this very room. And we need to get a hold of that vision, because a lot of times we're walking around going, I've got all these problems, I don't know what to do with them. I say, lay them down. We just sang it, lay them down at the feet of Jesus. Then it says, Jesus was speaking through his messengers as they were proclaiming the word of God. They were the angels. And that word angel means a messenger sent by God. And these angels are in the hand of God. They're, they're in his hands. And rather you like to believe it or not that when we're speaking as ministers and we're preaching the actual word of God, not just some of our own ideas, that we're actually God's messengers. A lot of times we just dismiss, well, I don't agree with that pastor. Well, sometimes we don't because they're not preaching the word. You shouldn't. 
But if it's in the scriptures, you better be paying attention. It's there. Worship also involves comprehension. It's about understanding. John understood what he saw. He knew who it was. He knew it was Jesus. Because verse 18 says, I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. You know, I always think it's interesting when I go to a funeral service and people say, oh yeah, he's in a better place. How in the world can we make a statement like that? If you believe there's life after death and you have to know that somebody had to deal with that great enemy of humanity called death, and I want to declare to you this morning that there is a person who conquered death for humanity and his name is Jesus. And when you and I put our trust in him, you and I have a hope that we will experience life beyond this. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, or the pastors. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Finally, worship involves a response on the part of the worshiper. When John saw Jesus, he worshiped. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Wow. Here's a guy that walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry, but now he sees him in his glorified state, and it's a terrifying thing. I'm so convinced that if the supernatural broke in here this morning, it would terrify us. You know, if an angel showed up to visit you at night, you'd be freaked out. How do you know that, Pastor? I keep reading when angels show up, first thing out of their mouth is, fear not. Because we we're afraid. And as human beings, we're terrified of all kinds of stuff. <laughs> worship involves the totality of our personality. Evan Underhill writes about worship as the totally adoring response of man to the eternal God self-revealed in time. Warren Worsby says it this way, the, un, the believer's response of all that he is, mind, emotion, will, and body, to all that God is, says, and does. What, is it, what are we saying here? That, you know what, worship isn't just what we're doing right now. We're singing a song. It's not just even listening to a message. Worship is giving your entire body and life and time and energy and resources to God. That's worship. This is just the culmination of a week of worship as we gather together. You know, Thomas Carlyle said, wonder is the basis of worship. We've lost a sense of wonder. We're stripping it all away. You know, we, we live in this technological world. But worship takes two things which we're quickly losing, wonder and time. And with all of the conveniences and gadgets to entertain us, we're bored and we're unimpressed. Nothing shocks us, nothing stimulates us. We're bored. There's a growing lethargy. What was promised to save time, our modern conveniences have only rearranged time. We're spending more time on less essential things all the time. The second thing we discover about worship is the person we worship. Worship centers on God. It says in Psalm 100 and verse 2, worship the Lord. We, were, we, we, we actually read Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 47. This. It says, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Yes, we did that. I'm going to skip over. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. 
You know, one of the things that I've tried to get across to our congregation, I said, if you can settle this in your heart and mind, you'll handle anything that comes your way. Number one, God is always good. And number two, God is always loving. And so don't interpret your circumstances as if this is determining the nature of God. But that's what we do. We question the goodness of God and the love of God when we're in difficulty. Isn't that true? But God is always good and God is always loving. One of the problems of our time and in our culture is that we often make worship about us. Isn't that true? We come to church and uh, we evaluate it. We go home and go, well, did this meet my needs? Isn't that true? You know, music, the preaching, all this kind of stuff. How did I feel? What did I think? Was I motivated, stimulated, inspired, challenged? Oh, I was put out, I was frustrated, didn't like what person was singing, you know, on and on and on we go. Do you know worship isn't even about us? Who cares what we think? Actually, this is about God. We're not here for us. This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change your paradigm. You're coming here to worship God. It's about God. So the question is, what does God think? At the end of our service, God he probably sits down and goes, huh, that person was so distracted over there, they, they weren't engaged in it. They, they, were, they were there in body, but they certainly weren't there in emotion. Their thinking was shut off. They're, they're thinking about yesterday's problems. Uh, they're trying to figure out how they're going to solve tomorrow's challenges. All the things that go on in our head. You see, God is evaluating, you know, are we giving him the very best in our life? So God is looking past our forms, our styles, our songs, our words, and looking at the condition of our soul. You know, you can, I can worship in all kinds of church. I can work, worship in a liturgical church. I can worship on a beach. I can worship in a cathedral. I can worship anywhere. See, we've got to change our whole thinking, you know, about worship. Eugene Peterson translates, in his translation, you know what he's doing in the message? He's trying to take the Word of God and translate it and put it in contemporary language so that it, it actually is going to shock us. Because I think sometimes, you know, we have this wonderful, don't mess with the King James Version, you know. But the reality is, are we hearing what God's trying to say? And in Malachi, he says this, isn't it true that sons honor their fathers and a worker his master? So if I'm your father, where's the honor? This is God talking. And if I'm your master, where's the respect? The God of the angel armies, that's a name for God, is calling you on the carpet. You priests despise me. You say not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, defiling worship. Ouch. You ask, what do you mean defiling? What's defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that's defiling. And when you offer worthless animals for sacrifices and worship, animals that you're trying to get rid of, the blind, the sick, the crippled animal, in other words, you're giving God not the best, right? Isn't that defiling? He says, try a trick like that. Why don't you go to your banker or your senator? How far do you think that's going to get you? You know, what are you doing? You're having a form of godliness but denying God's place of preeminence? They were giving God the leftovers in their lives rather than respecting him and giving him the best. God wants you to give him the best. That's the truth. You know, do we give God the best the best days of our lives, the best hours of our lives, the best of our energy, the best of our finances. You know, people always say, Pastor, how do you start tithing? I go, it's real simple. You take the first 10%, you cut it off, you give it to God. That's the best. 
And then you figure out how to live on the other 90%. You know what I've discovered a long time ago? We just spend as much as we make. And most of us now are spending more than we make. And then we can't figure out why this isn't working. You know, so I'm, I'm preaching through Proverbs right now. I'm saying, hey, guys, learn how to give, learn how to save, learn how to live simpler. And you know what you'll find out? You're happier. You're not in debt, and you become more generous. It's a better life. I, I'm really, it's really getting quiet in here, Greg. I do this in our church, too. <laughs> it happens to me everywhere I go. I have, an, I have this sombering effect on people, you know. I'm really amazed that I'm still their pastor after 31 years. I'm just really amazed by that. In Revelation 1, we find that worship was based on who God is. And we have this amazing Trinitarian greeting. It says, John to the seven churches in the province in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. So here we have this greeting. I love it. It says, to him who was and is and is to come. What is, he, what is he saying? This is the unchanging nature of God. God is unchanging. You know, sometimes we go, yeah, well, that's the way God used to do things. I'm going to argue with you. you know, I, I really get frustrated when people go, oh, yeah, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. He's kind of cranky in the Old Testament, the New Testament, very loving God. I'm going, you're not reading your Bible correctly. You know, sin is sin. God's going to deal with it. And there's judgment in both testaments and there's grace in both testaments. How's that? God's the same. It's the way it works. Regarding the person of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne. He's not talking about how many spirits there are. That's a symbolic number. Seven talks about someone who's complete. There's nothing you add to them. The seven spirits. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person who reveals to us who the Father and the Son are. He's the one who reveals truth to us. Regarding the Son, we read of his great feet and destroying death. He's called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now we're told why we should worship. We don't only worship God for who he is, but for what he's done, to him who loved us. You know, that's a, it's an amazing thing. You know, before I ever had a consideration of God, God died for me. When people say, I don't know if God loves me, Pastor, I go, he died for you. You know, settle it. He loves you. How many people here would you die for? Some of you are getting quiet now. Not too many, right? And you know something? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that amazing? How many are amazed that while we were absolutely rascals, had no thought of God, he laid down his life for you and me? That is amazing to me. He loves us. And then it says, to him who loosed us, to him who forgave us. Do you know forgiveness is so powerful? You always tell people, when you forgive people, you're giving them a gift they don't deserve. And what happens is that you move from being a victim to a victor. In our culture today, we're, taught, we're teaching people how to be victims. And we're teaching people how to be irresponsible. And not take on any responsibility. And you know what happens in a culture like that? Everybody's a victim. And that's the culture we're living in today. And nobody's getting better. And so we have a new normal today. And I want to declare to you, you don't have to be broken. Jesus is here to heal you. Jesus is here to free you. Jesus is here to love you this morning. 
It says, and he will lift us. What an incredible hope. When he comes, we shall be like him. Some, of, some people say to me, Pastor, I don't even like who I am. I say, good news, Jesus can change you. Isn't that true? You know what, I can honestly say, you would not recognize me. If you would have known me when I first became a Christian, you'd have went, man, that kid's so messed up, he's so broken, you know. And I'm telling you something, God just started doing a healing work, a transforming work. He just changes people, you know. And after a while you go, man, this is amazing. I, I don't even recognize myself. What in the world's going on? I have a totally different heart. My heart is changing. You know, all of a sudden, a very self-centered person becomes someone who's more concerned about other people. When did this start happening, God? I've been working inside of your heart for a long time. I've been changing you from the inside out. Isn't that amazing how he does that? But let me move on to the final thing we discover about worship, and that's who the participants are. Who are the true worshipers? It's only those who have received God's grace and worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice the letter was addressed to a specific particular local congregations in Asia. Asia. He says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The church here is now described as a lampstand that Jesus is among. The nature of worshiping communities of faith is that they shed light for others to see Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That your, your job and my job is primarily to let our little light shine. And we do it you know, how many know, if everybody had a candle in their hand right now and I turned out all the lights and then I just had us all leave the building and you only came in here, you were the only person, there wouldn't be very much light. But as more and more people join the building, what starts happening? The place becomes illuminated and that's why we gather together so that the light of Jesus begins to shine brightly in a community. Very powerful. It says... <clears throat> But when you and I, you and I have the capability of diminishing that light. Isn't that sad? You see, how do we do that? When we stray, when we sin. In essence, when we don't do what God wants us to do. And what starts happening is then there's a need to correct. And I, I've been sharing this, you know, from the book of Proverbs. I've said, you know, when you, wisdom is the, is the characteristic of a child of God. We are walking in wisdom. We're called to walk in wisdom. Paul says to do that. But isn't it interesting? I said, you know, wise people are willing to be instructed and corrected. And the people who are not wise are described as foolish. And the foolish person isn't a stupid person. It's a person who's morally deficient. And it's a person who won't be corrected and won't be instructed. And how many are recognizing we're living in a culture today that people are not open to dialogue and be instructed and even possibly be corrected? So how can you get any better when you keep doing stupid things over and over and over again and are not listening and somebody comes along and says, there's a better way to do this and it'll save you a lot of grief and pain? Yeah. Yeah. Go, no, I don't want to listen to you. I just want to keep messing up my life. And that's what I hear all the time from people. I'm going, really? <laughs> right? You know, our value to the community and to those around us is that we're lights. We're witnessings of the life of Christ. That's the es essential purpose. To know Jesus and to make him known. That's the nature of us as his people. The church has a message to communicate both what has happened and what will happen? Now, you know what I think is happening today? Somebody wants to put our light out. 
Somebody wants to silent our voice. I'm not even saying it's a person. I'm not saying it's even our society. You know what I think it is? I think it's the spirit that's against Christ. It's trying to shut this voice out. So, I began the message with the challenge of suffering and perplexity in life. And I want to just say this. We can live with confidence in a world that's challenging. Why? God is in control. When we trust him, when we honor him with our lives and we give him the best, that's what worship is. And worship must become preeminent in our lives. Our lives must be centered on God and not on ourselves. And we can see that. That's what John was trying to say. And I'm going to close with the story. C.S. Lewis, I love it. You know, he, get, he becomes a Christian, right? He's an intellect. He's brilliant. He's a genius. And so he says, when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, he's writing in this book, he says, I thought I could do it on my own. By retiring to my room and reading theology, I wouldn't go to church or the gospel halls. I disliked them very much. I disliked their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. <laughs> wow. Slam. He was slamming, right? Lewis had an attitude. Anybody get that? But he said, I went on, and then eventually I saw some merit to it. And then I came up against... Oh, there was different people there from different outlooks, different educational background, and gradually some of the conceit in my heart began to peel away. And I realized that the hymns, even though they were still sixth-rate, were nevertheless being sung with such devotion and were benefiting people. And then I looked beside me at this old saint, you know, with plastic boots in the opposite pew, and then I realized, you're not even fit to clean those boots. Get out of your conceit, Lewis. Isn't that amazing? And as we stand together this morning, and we're going to have you stand, we're going to have the musicians come back. Maybe you're here today, you're suffering. Maybe you're here today in perplexity. Maybe you're here today in doubt. Maybe you're here today in despair. What am I trying to say to you? That this book, what we really need is a vision of Jesus. What we really do need is to worship him and to allow his presence to come alongside of us and lift us up. Amen? And rekindle something inside of us that would bring transformation in our lives. And if we're transformed, listen, if the church becomes transformed, you know what the great need in Canada is? I'm going to tell you what it is right now. We need a move of the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God to come and transform the church. We need to address the sins in our own hearts and lives. And when that starts happening, we'll have a move of God, and we need it right across the land. And when that starts happening, all the gates of hell won't be able to stand against the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.